0: Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Technical Director of NPR Music, and engineer for its popular Tiny Desk Concerts program, Josh Rogeson. First of all, there's a story by Ashley Carman in Bloomberg News about the various fraudulent schemes that music labels and managers and artists regularly face these days. The first is sped up and slowed down versions of songs that are found all over streaming services that effectively take away the attention from the authentic, real tracks. The second is unknown artists tagging recognizable names as being featured on their track. And what that does is it gives them access to the platform's algorithmic promotion that's built around that bigger star. But what we're going to talk about is sped up versions of songs known as Nightcore. Most labels and managers see these fast versions of songs just as a way to steal artists' royalties, but it turns out that labels themselves actually embrace the practice, and one of the biggest appears to be Warner Music. The company has its own sort of covert remix account called Sped Up Nightcore, although it's not credited as an official Warner Music account. It's now become one of the top 300 accounts with more than 16 million listeners per month. Why doesn't Warner Brothers just release the sped-up versions to the artist's official accounts? You probably thought that. I did too. For one thing, sped-up Nightcore gives off this cool underground vibe and the feeling that someone is finding something that's illicit. The second thing is that it allows the label to put all the remixes in one place, becoming a landing page for TikTokers who are really into this. Finally, a sped-up version can breathe new life into a song without having to use an influencer campaign. Warner Brothers isn't the only company doing this, by the way. Universal also has its own version called Speed Radio. Meanwhile, Spotify launched its own sped-up song playlist that has over a million followers and typically features label-approved versions of the tracks. It turns out that artists were once hesitant to get involved in Nightcore and covert accounts, but if that's what fans demand, and if they'll get paid more as a result, why not participate? And that's what's happening. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. You can find it at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording-engineer forward slash handbook-fifth-edition. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, here's something on a microscopic level that might be interesting to you. In a new paper published in the Journal of Nature Nanotechnology, scientists from Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands show how they're able to record the sounds of a single bacterium using drums made of graphene. Now, graphene is a two-dimensional material composed of carbon that's only one atom thick. It's incredibly strong while remaining flexible, and it's so flexible in fact that it can register the minute movements as small as a bacteria crawling across its surface. The tiny forces that keep the bacteria alive and help it grow and help it divide are then picked up by the graphene, and these tiny vibrations are measured by a laser and then sent to a computer where they're converted to sound waves. The question was, what was causing the sounds? The scientists determined that about 80% of the sounds they measured came from the microscopic appendages that help bacteria swim through their environment. The remaining 20% of the recorded sound is still a mystery, though. Aside from just being cool, the ability to measure the sounds that bacteria make could have life-saving applications in the medical field. Primary care and emergency doctors could use these drums to understand whether an antibiotic is working or not. When the bacteria are alive, you can hear them. But when you add an antibiotic, the sound diminishes, which means that the antibiotic is having an effect in killing them. I couldn't find any actual recordings of these bacteria drums, but I wasn't expecting it to sound like Terry Bozio anyway. As with anything in scientific papers, it might be years until the results are used in the field. My guest this week is Josh Rogerson who stumbled into NPR headquarters in 1999 on his way to mixing shows at the Shakespeare Theater in downtown Washington, D.C. Since then, he's been at the controls for all of NPR's flagship news magazines and gathered sound in far-flung places like Togo, Cambodia, and Greece for the Radio Expeditions series. Josh has engineered at both NPR West and NPR New York and spent two years as technical director for Marketplace Productions in Los Angeles. He's also served as Senior Broadcast Engineer for New York Public Radio and Studio 360 and was the originating producer and sound designer for NPR's Ask Me Another. In his current role, Josh is the Technical Director for NPR Music and has recorded and mixed over 500 Tiny Desk concerts. During the interview, we spoke about learning about audio for the theater, recording congressional hearings, using audio to tell stories, behind-the-scenes at Tiny Desk concerts, working with you 2 and David Crosby, and much more. I spoke with Josh via Zoom from his office in Washington. Let's go back to the beginning here and how you got into music and audio and that led to where you're at today.
1: I grew up in a musical household. My mom was a child actress. She, She actually was in films with Elvis Presley in the 50s. Uh, and was an original Musketeer in Los Angeles, which is where I grew up the first 12 years of my life. And my dad uh, is a composer uh, and a conductor, really a composer of musical theater type stuff my whole life growing up, playing songs, playing piano around the house, coming up with ideas, inviting people over to hear his songs and kind of test them out. Uh, And then he also conducted for Johnny Mathis um, for three or four years Uh, his orchestra. So uh, I was just very fortunate to grow up in a musical household Uh, that eventually um, led us from Los Angeles to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, My parents started a little acting school there because my mom was always teaching acting and she was a commercial agent in Los Angeles. My dad would teach private voice in addition to um, doing the whole musical theater writing. And uh, We moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire from LA and they set up a theater, uh, an acting school first called the Portsmouth Academy for the Performing Arts, which is still there, Papa. And um, out of that grew a small regional theater called the Seacoast Repertory Theater. And I used to perform throughout high school and every summer home from college in rock and roll musicals. I was sort of split between wanting to be a musician, wanting to be a musical theater actor on Broadway and working with sound. I got my first four-track cassette-based Tascam Porta Studio, 424 in the mid-90s. And that really kind of turned me on to the whole concept of audio being even a career, which I had never really even realized was a possibility up to that point. So I was writing all my own songs, singer-songwriter stuff on guitar, and uh, I needed to record them. And that uh, was just a great way to get ideas down. And it was an incredible um, sort of aha moment when I when I learned that you can actually overdub yourself. Uh, I felt like Les Paul must have felt when he was <laughs> recording Mary Ford. Yeah, we all get that, don't we? Oh my gosh, it is a magical moment. Yeah. And where'd you go from there? Um, so uh, I was off to college trying to decide whether or not to be a musical theater person or an audio person. So I chose a school that kind of had everything that I was interested in. Uh, Ithaca College, upstate New York, started as a music school. And they um, they have a very good communications department called the Roy H. Park School of Communications and they also had a, a wonderful theater program. So I went in exploratory or undecided as one calls it and just took as many courses as I could having to do with the interests that I had and eventually kind of designed my own major. I took the physics of sound in the science school. I took the um the sound reinforcement class in the theater school, electroacoustic music in the music school. Um, broadcast, uh, television and radio in the communication school, and of course, multi-track recording. Also in the communication school at that time, now, of course, they've developed an official recording engineering program, which did not exist at Ithaca College, even though it was a music school in the mid to late 90s. So, um, you know, all the multi-track recording was done on ADAT and Tascam, D- D- 8. D- 88 Yeah, that's it. yeah. Yep, Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, outboard gear, patch base, analog consoles. Um, and then, of course, there's this thing called Pro Tools that were showing us because all the film students were using Avid and Media One Composer and stuff. So the film folks were kind of veering from 16 millimeter and the audio folks were just getting their toes wet into Pro Tools. And my final project, because I wanted to get my feet wet in in the digital world thinking, I better learn some of this if I want a job in audio, was actually, I was the sound designer for a children's television show called Moosh News Corner, This puppet show, and um, I did my final project in Pro Tools, which at the time was, again, mind-blowing aha moment for me, the fact that you could lock your Pro Tools session to an external beta tape machine. And when I moved my Playhead and Pro Tools, the tape machine shuttled to the correct location. I was floored. And then I graduated, uh, did an apprenticeship at North Shore Music Theater, 1800 seats in the round, where I learned so much about, well, sound reinforcement in the round, very tricky. Uh, I also learned about, you know, Sennheiser 2012 wireless microphones and all of the uh, capsules and i learned to, about micro dot connections and how to re-terminate them which is no easy feat painting wires to match hair color sewing on uh, toupee barrettes dealing with mic packs chasing after actors and blowing out sweated out microphone capsules with a can of compressed air only once was one up in the pa so that, that was an interesting noise uh, yeah. for the audience that day. Um, so that was about eight months. It was just an incredible way to learn a lot quickly. That was just awesome. Very, very grateful for that internship. And there's a publication called art search, which is sort of a print publication at the time where technicians of theater, professional theater would find jobs. And I, Found a posting for the Shakespeare Theater in Washington D.C. They basically needed an assistant sound engineer, otherwise known as a board op. Where again, they had an analog console, uh, Soundcraft, where you had to bus everything to get to different speakers all over the theater. And I had notes about which cues to bus where, and all different levels, and hit this mini disc at this time, and then hit this mini disc and then fade that one in, then hit the third one and make sure they're bust correctly and then fade them out by here. And it was actually quite complicated um, and difficult, much to my surprise, uh, running sound cues for Shakespearean shows. Yeah, you wouldn't think, would you? At that level, I mean, all of the music, it was uh, the production values at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington DC are world renowned and all of the sound cues are, you know everything's completely scored there's battle sequences there's sound effects there's it's incredibly um all of the production values were just stunning from lights to costume to sound design it was really quite a cool experience and i used to walk by npr on my way to the shakespeare theater every day uh washington dc was sort of my first grown up city and um I was sort of living in a sketchy neighborhood by the Convention Center in Shaw, for those who are familiar with Washington, and I would walk by the big construction site on my way to the Shakespeare Theater, very sketchy neighborhood at the time in the late 90s, early aughts. I just sort of looked up at the big building that NPR had at the time, they've moved since, scratched my head and said, I used to listen to NPR on my long drives from my home." near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to Ithaca, New York. You know, it's an eight-hour drive. It's it's not subtle. I do it all the time. And there's only so much you can take your mixtapes before you kind of go crazy and you kind of, oh, what's on the radio? Yeah, this yeah. is fun. Radio's the best, right? Yeah. Come on. It's always your companion. So um, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I've, I've listened to some NPR. But I wasn't like an avid fan or anything. Um, I didn't grow up with it with my, my folks didn't listen to it. So, um, I don't know. I think when I got to DC as a young professional, uh, trying to afford an expensive city making, I think it was $12 an hour at the theater at the time, which mm, wasn't all that great. Uh, I was looking for other opportunities because once the show was up and running, it kind of got a bit repetitive. It shows a week, same thing every night. The tech part was always fun and fascinating and interesting to work with him, with the composers and the sound designers. But once the show's up and running, it's a bit like, okay, show up to the theater at seven 30 shows at eight, go home and sleep. So I had a lot of a, a downtime. Once the shows were up, they ran for about two or three months. Which is pretty long for a regional theater. Um, it was a small theater at the time. It was about 450 seats. So I used to sort of like, you know, keep my eyes peeled. There was a, a newspaper called the Washington City Paper. I'm not sure if it exists in print form anymore. I used to read it on the Metro and stuff. And in there, I found a posting for a transcription service who needed people, not necessarily audio engineers, to go attend congressional hearings, patch into their press molt box with a very low quality cassette tape with cassettes that were not new, used (laughs) over and over again and basically record the hearing. And you just have to write the first few words of the person who's talking for the transcription service. It's called Federal News Service. Not sure if it still exists. You know, that was another 12 bucks an hour. And I got my uh, congressional Hill pass and I'm riding the subway underground with uh, Congress people. It was kind of kind of a trip yeah uh, there's a whole sort of you know underground labyrinth of i mean the the building and i've you know i'm in washington dc that you know it's such a historic place just to be on the inside track of that was pretty exciting even though you know the audio engineering work so to speak i mean hey i wasn't working at a bookstore I was actually i felt yeah. hey i'm hitting record you know yeah, yeah. Does, doesn't that count sure it was pretty pretty cool Uh, And then the other thing that I decided to do was to pop into NPR on my way to the theater. And I remember asking if there was a tour, which there was not. And I said, well, what about job listings? Um, They may have had it posted online somewhere at that point. It was 1999. They had instead uh, the security guard pointed me to a stack of papers where job listings for the company were in sort of like a little pamphlet. So I had a physical pamphlet. I'm flipping through what makes sense. They've got to have audio engineers in here. Stumbled upon something called Broadcast Recording Technician, BRT. I said, oh, that's probably pretty close. Uh, It looked pretty exciting. Five years broadcast experience required. So I said, screw it, I'm going to apply. I sent in an application, heard nothing for probably three months. So of course I thought, eh, whatever. I'm not qualified. Summer rolls around. At the time, NPR headquarters had upwards of 50 audio engineers working in Washington, DC, which I found surprising. And all of those audio engineers, because they're in a union and there's generous benefits at a place like NPR with, you know, I think you start at three weeks vacation. That's 50 people who want to take off in the summer months. So the manager who called me, Camille Jefferson, she gave me a buzz and said, hey, how would you like to come in and and take our competency test? I was recently out of college, so I said, yeah, absolutely. Popped in, took, a I think it was like a 50 question, multiple choice test about microphone polar patterns, three to one rule. And for square law, all that good stuff that you know and love, and uh, I passed with flying colors. They said, "Yeah, hopefully we can call you in for some freelance work." Which basically, you know, what's your availability? I told them I had Mondays off because the theater's dark, and they're like, "Great! No one likes to work the three to uh, three p.m. to eleven thirty p.m. shift, and those are your theater hours. So tag your it on every Monday." That's how I started. I got trained by some wonderful colleagues, uh, Michael Cullen. I remember training me. He now runs sort of, um, what's now called mops. I don't remember what it stands for, but it's what was master control is now in an open office, which is highly, highly odd and disparaging to an old schooler like me. Uh, but Michael was fabulous. He trained me, um, And I remember uh, in the Record Central where you take in feeds from reporters all over the world, you've got a little studio, a couple of nice Genelec monitors right at you. You've got four reel-to-reel MCI uh, quarter-inch tape machines behind you, two processing chains, which included uh, a URI peak peak notch filter followed by um, an Orban paragraphic EQ and a DBX 160 compressor and a patch bay. And it was so busy. You would have to take in two, three feeds simultaneously, switching audio to your back speakers. Once you got them set up and then your front speakers, we had like uh, JBL control ones in the back of the room. So once you got this set up, send them, send Jerusalem to the back of the room. They'll continue tracking without you while you set up the next person. And it was just a factory of taking in news feeds. It was really cool. Um, but what was, was wonderful about it is that I got to talk to people over ISDN, which stands for I still don't know. Um, <laughs> it's basically used two telephone lines to acquire to accomplish 128 mil, uh, megabits per second. And MP, MP2 was the codec we used. Sounded really good for human voice and mono audio. Pretty, pretty great. It held up really nicely over air. Um, so before, we had FTP as well, but most of it was over ISDN. A lot of reporters all over the world, because it's fast, it's real time. They basically write their scripts, they get it edited, they call me, the engineer in the RC, Record Central. There were three of them RC1, RC2, RC3. Because in the middle of the day, at crunch time, for all things considered, all the pieces are filing in like. On top of each other, and you need three rooms to handle it.
0: Jeez, wow! Who Yeah,
1: who would have known? Now it's obviously all done electronically over the computer, so it doesn't matter. But back then, it was pretty exciting. Um, I would record everything. I would speak to, uh let's say, I was speaking to Michelle Kellerman in Moscow, and she would say, "Hey, Josh, how you doing? It's you know late at night here. Do you want to level?" Great. Here's my voice level. She would read some. Hey, Michelle, you're popping your peas. Can you back off the mic? Okay. Sounding really good. I'm rolling. Hit record on one of my MCI machines back there for her story. And then I could do another story on one of the other two machines. Uh, then she would say, okay, I'm ready to file my tape. She would hook up. She would kill her mic. She would hook up her, um, what was it? Probably a, a mini disc at that point. Uh, play back all of her actualities or maybe she would have it in cool edit on her laptop, all kind of chopped up and ready to go. Cause when she does her edit, she's playing back the clips for her editor. She cues up her first clip. I said, oof, that's distorting a bit. You pull down the level. Oh gosh. Maybe next time you'll want to get the mic a little closer. There's a lot of room sound. Yeah, I know. It was really tough. So it was actually a really awesome collaborative thing that made NPR sound freaking great. Because literally, these reporters aren't sending audio into the void, which they do now. They're actually talking to a human being who's listening on the other end, who has processing chains to basically clean up all the audio for the producers and the next engineer who's going to mix it. So it it was, yeah, pretty astounding and wonderful training. Um, And what I learned from that was really how to make things sound intelligible and clean. I learned how to use a peak notch filter with the dials that crackled when you turned <laughs> them. Cause it's an old URI, yeah, yeah. you know, like I, I feel kind of bad for folks who don't have that anymore, um, or won't have the opportunity to experience that horrific sound. Um, and then, you know, how, what kind of EQ curve, where, where can I tuck out on my Orban paragraphic EQ you know to get the mud out and to maybe make it sparkle a little bit you know and i learned i learned how to eq i learned how to use my ears not as a musician but just as a, like an intelligibility cop to clean up horrific sounding tape without rx without a computer just using good old-fashioned eq and compression and uh, i feel very grateful that NPR was so slow to transition to digital. Cause when I showed up, I said, Where's Pro Tools? What are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, Yeah, we're we are like a big freight ship, Michael Cullen would tell me that moves very
0: slowly. Turn slowly, yeah, all right. Let's go to tiny desk concerts, which is fascinating. I mean I love these things. It sounds great. What I especially like is their bite size. Fifteen minutes is like perfect.
1: That's the genius of Bob Boylan, yeah. I've got a very short attention span, especially as I'm growing a bit older. You know, I don't particularly wanna listen to a band for two hours, frankly. I mean, an album I can get through if it's a good one. What is that, 45 minutes? Whatever restrictions there were on an LP is how long an album is, right? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) And how long a single is based on the technology, which I find fascinating. But yeah, I, I got to NPR and I was doing a lot of field recording and I would learn stereo recording techniques on the National Geographic series. So I learned about MS stereo recording stories in West Africa and Cambodia. And I learned about ORTF. I learned about spaced omnis and I learned about binaural and or didn't learn about, I guess I learned about all those techniques in college, but I actually got to practice them with real content. Telling stories through sort of documentary sound. So it didn't, it wasn't that difficult to make the jump from wanting to be a theater sound person to recognizing the opportunities I would have in journalism. I love all audio. I didn't know if I wanted to do music or journalism or theater or TV or film. I didn't care. I just wanted to work in audio. And the only reason I ended up where I did is because it was there when I walked by. Mm. So that, that's a really interesting thing that even though I didn't plan for it, I I ended up exactly where I, I should and needed to be. It's really quite remarkable. So the relationships I made with Bob Boylan when he was directing All Things Considered, after graduating from the Record Central, the RC, you graduate to the studio and you're mixing stories. And then you graduate to the broadcast studio where you're mixing the show live on the air. And I met Bob Boylan and he's throwing CDs at me at the last second. And he would get a lot of letters saying, what's that song you chose between those two stories. So he decided to start an internet streaming show called all songs considered long before podcasts existed. He was making a podcast, really cool stuff. And so I would help him out with that kind of stuff. And, Years later, I got ANSI. 2004, I went to NPR West. I, then I didn't want to wake up at four in the morning anymore. So I transferred to NPR New York. And then I got laid off in 2009 for the Great Recession after almost 10 years at NPR as a seasoned engineer. It was definitely shocking. Everything's based on seniority in our union. So because I'd been at the New York Bureau you know, only three years and the other three techs had been there for you know, 20 years, uh, first one out, first one in, last one out, something, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And um, I had to scramble, went to Marketplace in Los Angeles, had a lot of fun doing stories about the economic collapse on the weekend Marketplace show with Kyra Dahl and Tess Viglund. And then um, I was just antsy to get back to New York, to my little studio co-op apartment that I couldn't sublet for more than two years. WNYC, finally. Hired me after lots of begging and pleading. I was the technical director for, um, or the senior broadcast engineer for uh, Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson, which was a fabulous, fabulous show that no longer exists. And that's where I learned really how to craft a very good podcast, how to use music to score. I just finished sound designing NPR's um, Taking Cover, which is a new... uh, sort of subset of the embedded podcast with Graham Smith and Tom Bowman. And Graham just came to me and said, I need you to work your magic. I've got all this music, help me choose what to use and, and pace it and figure out when to feature it and when to not. And I mean, that stuff's so fun. So I got my fingers in lots of pies, which is great, but the tiny desk opportunity popped up. Um, after WNYC, I actually went back to NPR to work on a quiz show called Ask Me Another that taped in a bar in Brooklyn. And, um, I was the original sort of sound designer, but I got the title of producer. So I sort of like leaving the engineering hat behind and joining SAG-AFTRA to be a producer. Um, and, uh, because I wanted a new challenge and I wanted to start a, a show from scratch, had a lot of fun booked some musical guests and then about three years into that show my dear friend and colleague uh kevin wait who was the original audio engineer for tiny desk concerts kevin waits the guy who came up with the idea to use shotgun mics so uh i sort of inherited his way of thinking which was cool because it came from sort of how we field gather as radio journalists is oftentimes with shotgun mics. We had recorded the original first tiny desk with like one Neumann sort of like vocal mic and it was mono and there was no audience mics. And it was what you would expect. Laura Gibson. It's the first one in 2008. And then when he got tapped to do it, he decided to approach it as more of a stereo field gathering so it started out with that now iconic mkh 418s mid side shotgun microphone from sennheiser neumann our friends at sennheiser neumann and um uh, of course it has to get decoded in post-production you kind of need to know what you're doing to use it you can't just kind of like expect it to work so he made it sound good uh, and he added, he started with a sound device 722 and the MS stereo mic. And that was it. He would direct musicians, like even Wilco, a massive band, sort of like gather around it, direct them in such a way to tell them how far or close to be to it, have them listen in a really organic way so that, you know, they're kind of recording what I call hootenanny style, you know, like. Gathered around, you know, like they used to do in the old days. Yeah, yeah. Let's all gather around one microphone in a studio. And actually it sounded kind of good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some of those recordings sound cool. Yeah. So I, I just love that he kind of came up with that. And he used to get, uh, so after I moved back to New York to work for WNYC, he reached out and said, oh, God, thank God you're back on the East Coast. I need a lot of stuff done in New York. I'm, I'm the only guy at NPR Music and they're going to South by Southwest and they're going to the Newport Folks Festival and we record one or two tiny desks a week. And oh, by the way, we wanna also record and live stream concerts from La Poisson Rouge in New York City and, and um, also uh, celebrate Brooklyn at the band shell. And there was all of this incredible growth and work that sort of honed NPR's video team and it was just sort of the music department playing around, just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. And um, he tapped me to do a lot of the New York City work. So I would go to the Bowery Ballroom and record a band and and you know master it and send it back. And they would literally just put it on a web page, audio only. And it was great, just a great uh, early days way of like you know nowadays you can stream Coachella on YouTube, yeah. all the stages. So this is sort of like. What came before that? All Songs Considered had an awesome podcast feed called, uh, I think it was called just like MPR Concerts. And it was just audio of like maybe 500 concerts from different venues, mostly the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., which is just iconic and sounds great. Um, And this wasn't anything fancy. It was a board feed, audience mics, and some mastering. And it was good enough. You know, it's not like you're going to be, it's not like the record that you're going to play over and over, but it's kind of fun to like, man, I wanted to go to that show. It was sold out. It was just awesome. I loved what we were doing back then. So I got to jump on board with that. And then finally he was like, come to South by Southwest. That's where he taught me how to do field recordings. And those were um, grabbing musicians. There was a series called South by Southwest lullabies where after all the shows were done at 2 a.m., we would meet up with musicians and drag them out by you know the river that runs through Austin, Texas, or some random field, or some random barber shop, or you know anything you could possibly imagine. Their hotel room, and we would have to figure out how to record a band with just a couple of DI's, the sh- couple of shotgun mics. And uh, I did one with uh, Shaky Graves that they liked so much they actually released it on streaming. Huh. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. And that all sort of leads to the tiny desk. All of that experience of sort of capturing journalism and sort of marrying that with modern day studio production plugins and techniques, and it, it turns into this hybrid of, you know, when I when you when I when you play a tiny desk. I want it to sound as good as, you know, the commercially produced video that preceded it or came after. If you're sort of going down the rabbit hole of an artist and I don't want it to come up and go, Oh God, this, this doesn't quite hold up. So it's a really delicate balance of keeping it raw yet using more traditional techniques like EQ compression riding the levels like crazy and a teeny bit of reverb, but not using Melodyne, not using tons of reverb, not using delays so that people can get a more human, authentic, different experience of the artists that they love. And I think that is the success of Tiny Desk is actually not trying to replicate the band in a live studio session on the radio, which I love those too, but actually creating something that's completely new, that forces the artists to think in a new way about their songs and their hit music or a musical for that matter. I've been bringing in lots of musical theater because of my background. And I just had Kimberly Akimbo in, they just got nominated for eight Tony Awards and that's gonna publish on the 19th of May and Blue Man Group. And I just, what can I bring to Tiny Desk that can sort of like break the mold
0: Let me ask you a question here. So it seems like it started where we're just going to record this in stereo with the MK-418. And then it evolved from there. This is the impression I get now. Then it evolved from there. Well, let's use some spot mics here. Or, well, we need some background mics. And oh, by the way, we have an audience now. So then it expanded to where it is now.
1: Yeah, I think the audience also, to the point of what makes Tiny Decks special, is that there is an audience. It it completes the loop. It's not just sort of spoken into a void. There's a relationship that happens and you see it in the performer's faces. They get nervous. They kind of have to put their ego, check their ego at the door because there's no hiding. There's no PA. There's no monitors. But you're right. I slowly but surely, I went from Kevin's eight channel 788 sound devices and I had my own from when I got laid off so I could freelance. So I added mine and with a link cable, ooh, I, all have, I have 16 channels and then I got a backup one. Ooh, now I have 24 channels, but there are three compact flashcards and there's no Dante, so they can't interface with yeah. the computer. So I would, yes, I would slowly think like, man, I really want to hear something better or I just want to have more control. But the conceit was always to try to keep the mics To try to keep my microphones uh and all of the tech secondary to what's happening and that's been also the key because let's see what i love also about the shotgun mics besides the fact that they sound natural because they're literally designed for to pick up human speech at a bit of a distance you know in the film industry that's really what they're designed for and television uh, the fact that I can have a shotgun mic a bit out of the face of the person who's singing, that's such a rarity. Yeah. When was the last time you saw a performer without a microphone right in front of their face? There's so much expression and emotion that comes out of that. And that's also can be a clutch. A lot of performers, I need to hold on to something. So like, oh, here's a banana. <laughs> but, but we don't do that you know like yeah. the whole idea is just to sit and be in a room and forget about the tech and just to sing to your friends like as if you're around a campfire
0: so josh so how is this happening today then are you recording it and then mixing it later oh yeah very much so and that
1: that's always been the case um we did do one where we streamed four concerts as part of what was called Tiny Desk Fest Live, Meg The Stallion, Cheryl Crow, all of those were streamed live. I have them, the streaming recordings, and they actually they sound really nice. They sound really good. I didn't use any effects, but there's lots of room mics. And I also put everything through a TC electronics finalizer to just sort of before it went out. And I was really happy with it, but then of course, I went in and remixed the multi tracks for what lives on online forever because I can. Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, so I uh, I go in and I really listen and tune in, so to speak, to the musicians. If there's a bass player that has a cool little lick and it's in the middle of the verse, I don't mind. I just go in, isolate it and boost it. Mm. Um, I wanna, I really try to zone into what the musicians are doing to make the mix a little bit more dynamic rather than, oh, let's just set it. And then that's the level for the piano and set it. And that's the level for the guitar. And and then certainly with the vocalists who can be very dynamic, I'm riding levels like crazy. Remember Leanne LaHavis Le had like very, very quiet, quiet singing in her song, Forget. And in that extremely, extremely loud singing, was the last song from the Leanne LaHavis Le Tiny Desk. And I remember riding the levels so dramatically like you know plus 20 minus 10 like it's the 30 bd difference are you writing um, is this
0: on the sound devices that you're you're writing it i will write stuff live
1: when i get a sense of the show but no i'm more talking about the post-production and like where you make the decision to go up and go down it's like the concept of have you heard of forward temporal masking and backward temporal masking yeah I mean, you write all these books. Of course you've heard of it. Well, it's the idea that you hear a gunshot and you forget what just happened. So I I have to mix like that too. So when I'm mixing a podcast, if I've got music going on, I don't dip the music until the voice comes over. And I guess that's the reason for that is that I don't want you to hear anytime you notice the engineering, I didn't do my job in a way, you know, it's one of those sort of like beautiful
0: You'd never notice it, as a matter of fact. So I'm writing levels like
1: crazy, but the the idea is to choose the moments when to do it, so that your audience can't tell that it's being done. It just sounds correct.
0: So I assume there's a rehearsal then.
1: Oh yes, exactly. So I can kind of like anticipate because I am streaming everything live through the finalizer still, but it's for an internal NPR audience only. Since COVID, I made it a point actually. Uh, to ask the powers that be to make, because most people are remote now still. I'd say, you know, there's maybe 30% of the people who used to come to the building, come to the building. It used to be hard to find parking. Uh, And now no one, it's just a ghost town. It's really eerie, actually. So one of my sort of requests when we came back to filming these in person was that we provided a, a live stream internally for NPR employees behind our firewall, and and I think that's really sweet. So it's just the wide shot with my live mix, and it's
0: really sweet. Okay, so this all works incredibly well from a technical standpoint, but you have the musicians who, and I, I know what it's like, and you know what it's like when someone tells you to turn down. You have to turn down. Yeah. And it's a completely different concept of making music, especially if you're used to a big stage where have to project. Everything has to be louder. How do you accomplish that? I'm very fortunate that people at this point,
1: I'd say 90% of the musicians come in, know exactly what they're getting themselves into because the series is so successful and ubiquitous. So that has afforded me a level of trust. It's people, oh my God, you're the guy. Bono and The Edge walk in a couple months ago, I guess now, to promote their new acoustic album. I remember I saw them out of the corner of my eye. They're walking into the office area. I'm setting up my sound devices, CL-16 and the Scorpio, which is what I've upgraded myself to. It's Mm -hmm. lovely. And they literally beeline it straight for me. And this is across a big office with lots of different people in it and cubicles. They don't even really look at the Titus and go, wow, oh gosh, there's the Titus. They just literally walk straight up to me, Fano's right in my face and says, are you the guy? I said, no, you're the guy. Uh, yeah, Good <laughs> comeback. Like, He was like, he was like, I don't know what you're doing, man. Are you using lots of compression or something? It's just unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. And meanwhile, you know, I brought my, my copy of the unforgettable fire for him to sign. And he crossed out the word fire and wrote, josh so my signed vinyl from the edge and bono says the unforgettable crossed out josh that's awesome pretty sick pretty stupid and sick so it's like what is my life half the time other times there's musicians that come in who don't really know what the story is david crosby came in with a lighthouse band um the guy from snarky puppy michael michael uh, league michael Mm -hmm. league um had a band and uh Freaking David Crosby was in it with him and it was awesome. And uh, of course, David had an interview with Ann Powers right before his tiny desk with us because that's how the schedule worked. And it ran over because of course it did. Unfortunately, this was pre-pandemic times, our audience was already assembled, which is not something I like to do before I work with a musician and run through stuff. So he automatically comes in and starts sort of performing for the audience and like, oh and making jokes and stuff, hmm. and it's obviously sort of like what is this kind of self conscious whatever? Um, he's like, okay, cool. Where are my monitors? Oh. Said, oh, you know, Mr. Crosby, we don't do that. It's just sort of you sing out into the room. Did anyone tell? You? Yeah, we told you, Mike. We told you, David. This is what this is so cool. You're not even going to believe how amazing it comes out. It's so awesome. Yeah, but I can't possibly hear them myself. This is impossible. He basically, in front of the whole audience, I just had egg on my face going like, oh my God. I said, well, Mr. Crosby, you know, I'm going to set you up a monitor and I'm going to put in that monitor whatever you want. But can you just do me a huge favor and just try the first song the way we've been practicing before you got here and just listen and see see what it feels like. Sang through the first song, thunderous applause from the audience. We just went.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Well, I can see why. I mean, you do a great job. Everybody does a great job. I mean, it it is one of those things that it just pulls you in. It's music the way it should be. It should be spontaneous. Mm -hmm. It should be like that. And technology has gotten in the way to such a degree that everything is bombastic and huge. and It doesn't have to be, as you've shown. Yeah, I think,
1: um, yeah, it's all about just sort of the human experience, right? Like, What is music? It's just a way to communicate, and when you're communicating into a void, I think that's why the audience is such. I mean, I grew up performing and live theater is just like in my bones. So, the the thought of like just recording, so I, I, you know, I would record all my songs to tape, and I would overdub and get it just right, and then I would listen to, like, oh yeah, this is really good, and then there's just a point where it's just sort of this sterile thing. The only time I liked recording music, I remember I was living on Venice Beach when I was out at npr West. And um I was recording some of my music to the computer finally. I was using God, logic? I don't even remember. And um there was this really loud bird right outside my balcony, like chirp, 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 chirp. And I'm recording very soft vocals. It's like, man, this is crazy. There's this loud bird finally I just set up a mic outside and added the bird to the song and it was the best and that sort of helped me realize that um you know nothing's done in a vacuum everything even if you cut a hundred takes from the same vocal or the one vocal track comes from a hundred different takes on six different days what was going on through the mind of the singer on each of those individual days is different so each of those individual splices of recordings are time-stamped. Why erase that? Otherwise, what's the point?
0: Josh writes about audio, gear, earplugs, smart speakers, and more in his column, Tiny Tech Tips, as well as his Reddit AMA, which is Ask Me Anything, and YouTube videos. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to Bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.